Good evening, Saturday night. What a blessing to be with you. We are reading through and anchored in the Word as a congregation. This is a time like no time in our America's history since World War II where the globally things are going on. And so we need to be more than ever in prayer and in God's Word. And we've been doing 40 days of Rend the Heavens. This week it's the last opportunity for you to plug into that. 9 o'clock on Tuesday and Thursday morning and then Wednesday night at 6.30. But as we're reading through, we're picking a passage of Scripture. And uh, I've been going, you know, I'm picking a passage usually in the New Testament, and Rob's been picking the Old Testament, but the Old Testament reading this week, I just, I was tempted, I just had to plunge in to numbers. And so you're going to want to get a Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and our ushers team, Linda and the gang's going to get you a Bible. So raise your hand if you need a Bible, and if you don't have one, maybe you're visiting tonight, you don't have a Bible, you can take that home. That's a gift for you. But when we come across really challenging passages, I've always discovered that if I have questions and a few of the people I talk to have questions, then more people have questions. And as we look at our message here this evening, it's the mystery man, Balaam. Now, I want to tell you up front, his name is actually pronounced Balaam, but I'm not going to go through a 45-minute message saying Balaam. I'm just going to call him Balaam. That's the Idaho version of Balaam, okay? It's just like when the children of Israel worship the, uh, we say Baal, but it's Baal. That's the way you're supposed to, Baal. I mean, who wants to hear that for 45 minutes? Baal. Sounds like you've you know, got a furball in your throat or something. So uh, we're going to be talking about this mystery man, Balaam. And how does a guy experience so much exposure to the true, the living, almighty God, and then still become a false individual. How's that happen? How's that happen in spiritual circles? How's that happen in churches? How, how do you get false teachers and false prophets? And as this character emerges on the scene in the book of Numbers, now Numbers 22, 23, 24, and even 25, these uh, four to five chapters are about this guy. And Taking it apart and presenting that to you in a very digestible form was so tough, I said, forget it, I'm just going to teach all five chapters and we're ordering pizzas. Right? It's going to be a while. No, I'm teasing. So Some of you are nervous, like, I thought this was going to be short. But when you think about uh, a story like this that unfolds, and the consequence that now in the New Testament, this guy, Balaam, becomes an icon for false teachers. He becomes the poster child. His legacy, along with two other guys, we call them the trifecta of evil that are presented in the New Testament as false teachers, false prophets. Because just as genuinely there are true, good, sincere people that are serving the Lord, there's also the false. And you have to figure that out. And Jesus said that you will know them by their fruits. So in one sense, we are glorified fruit inspectors to observe the fruit of people and to see if they are good and beneficial for God's people or if they are deviant and have some perverse agenda towards God's people. So we want to look at that. Hey, if you have your Bible, maybe you've made your way to 
Numbers chapter 22. We're going to read the first 14 verses. So if you'd stand with me, we're going to read these 14 verses and launch into our message, the mystery man, Balaam. Starting in verse 1. Then the children of Israel moved and encamped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that the children of Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because there were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will look up everything around us as an ox lifts up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please... Please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would open our eyes Open our hearts, open our minds that we might see wonderful things from your word. Feed us, teach us, instruct us, Lord. And may your word accomplish the purposes that you have sent it for. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we read the introduction to this story in these 14 verses, you see the picture, you see the scenario. The children of Israel are moving through the land and they're a mighty camp. There are 600,000 fighting men of the fighting age and uh, that doesn't include women and children. Most believe that there's some two to four million Jews moving through the wilderness. Now that's a big camp, right? <laughs> it's a camp out. They don't have any water supply and they don't have any food. God feeds them. Every morning with manna, after the dew rises, there's this stuff that's like coriander seed, it says. It's like a wafer made with honey. It's basically, they beat it, they boiled it, they baked it. They had manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner. They had fried manna. They had boiled manna. They had baked manna. They had manicotti. They had manwich. They had, they had manna everything. God fed them and took care of them. 
And he would give them water also. They were totally dependent upon the Lord for these 40 years. And as they moved into Moab and they camped right next door to Balak, Balak is freaked out. And he's the king and he has to figure out how he can give a mask mandate for these guys, right? And social distancing. And he has to control them in this new age of COVID-19, right? There's nothing new under the sun. People in government are always trying to figure out how to control people, right? And so that's what Balak's doing. He's like, hey, somehow I need to control them. I need to curse them. I need to defeat them. I need to conquer them. That's his word. Now, he's heard of this guy, Balaam, and Balaam's from some distance away. He's the son of Beor. He's this guy that we're going to look at. He's a diviner. He's a sorcerer. He's this guy that actually... He knows who God is, and God is going to talk to him. Now, this tells us that God had relationship with people that were outside of the covenant people of Israel, because Moses and Aaron and Joshua and all of them are in the camp of Israel. This is a story happening to them unbeknownst to them. They don't even know this king's trying to curse them. They don't even know that they're sending for the big guns of Balaam to come and curse their camp. So they send these noblemen, they send these princes, and they go with the diviner's fee. They're going with a bag of money to pay this guy to come curse the people. What a ministry, huh? (laughs) Whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. That's pretty powerful stuff. You might be tempted. There might be some people in your life you want to have cursed. (laughs) Right? That neighbor that mows his lawn Saturday morning at 6 in the morning, you've been wondering if somebody would do something about that guy for some time. Imagine you're this guy that has this powerful ministry, and he comes, and he tells the guys, okay, you guys want me to come? And at this point, he doesn't know. He's, he's like kind of unaware of the children of Israel and what's going on. He's from some distance away. But Moab is filled with dread because Israel's been wiping everybody out. They just wiped out Og, king of Bashan. And Sihon, king of the Amorites, these are like notable warriors and armies. And the Israelites, by God's blessing, just wiped them out. So now they're in their backyard. What are they going to do about this? Now, Balaam does something pretty wise here. And we're going to see through this process, he knows God. He knows how to interact with God. He hears from God. At times he obeys God. And then we will see ultimately he disobeys God. But he tells him, he says, you know what? You guys spend the night. I'm going to go talk to God. We'll see what he has to say about this, if I'm going to take the job or not. So he goes, and the Lord says, who are these men who have come to you? Now, anytime God asks a question in the Bible, does he really not know the answer? Right? I mean, just kind of, you got to process with me. God, he is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. God knows everything. And because he's omniscient, but he asked to promote and prompt introspection in the people he's talking to. When he says to Adam, Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. <laughs> it's like, well, I was hiding because I, I was, you know, I'm ashamed. I'm naked. It's like, well, who told you you're naked? How do, how do you know? Did you eat of the tree? I told you not to. All of it's to elicit a, a response. And you know Adam's great response. Husbands have been using it ever since. It's the woman that you gave me. You two got a problem. It's not my fault. Doing counseling for 30 years, I've had husbands say that almost verbatim. God, you gave me this woman. She's been a real problem for all these years. You and her got to figure it out. Let me know. I'll be in the car. 
So here Balaam, he's talking to the Lord, and the Lord said, and Balak just tells, or excuse me, Balaam says, Balak, the king of Moab, wants me to come curse these people. And God says, you can't curse them because I blessed them. So how are you going to curse who I blessed? So you can't go. And he goes, okay. And he wakes up in the morning. And once again, it tells us this. When he wakes up in verse 12, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes, princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Now, depending on how he said that, he would be leaving the door open for them to come around. Because you see, in Middle East negotiation, a no, the first no is usually try harder, offer more, is really the negotiation. So we pick it up in round two, okay? Round two, he goes back, God says, no, you can't go. So he obeys, boy, Balaam, good job. In verse 15, round two, it says, then Balak again sent spies more numerous and more honorable than they. So obviously he just wasn't impressed enough. We gotta send these really important princes of the land. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly and I will do whatever you say to me, therefore please come, curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. So round two, what's changed? It seems like here Balaam's determined. He comes back to the Lord. It's one of those things you discover in God's your relationship with God, that there are times that God, you pray about something and God just says no, but then you're not willing to let it go. Have you ever had one of those things that you keep pushing and you keep pushing and you keep pushing and you throw a little bit of a tantrum and come on, God, this is really, really what I want? And it's almost like the Lord goes, okay. It's like a permissive will, like, okay, it's not best for you. It would have been best for you to stay home, Balaam, because you're just gonna get yourself into trouble, but okay. Now, if you're going to go, it is conditional. You only tell him what I tell you. Nothing more, nothing less. Ben's like, good, fine. You know, I've discovered that if I want to kick and scream and push beyond and get God's per- permissive will, I usually regret it. Because you see, he knows what's best for me because he sees what's down the road. And Jesus said, I have the keys to your life. And I can open those doors and I can close those doors in front of you. But if you're determined to kick a door down, the Lord goes, okay. You want to do that? Go ahead. It's not going to be great for you. You know, Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 12, as he's talking to believers, he says, do not be conformed. In chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might know the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Do you know that that is a gradient, good, God's good will? 
Acceptable, that means God's pleasing will. Perfect means spot on, hit the bullseye, in the center of God's will. So as I walk with the Lord, I want to go beyond good. I want to go beyond acceptable. I'm really searching for the sweet spot of what God wants because I've discovered that that's, I I call it being under the spout where the blessings flow out. You know what I mean? I just know I'm right where God wants me. I'm not pushing against his will because you see, I have this, I have this self-centered nature that pushes against God's will. I know you guys don't because you're good people, but I do. And I'll push against God's will, and I'm like, how much more, you know, can I go this direction? The Lord's like, no, 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 don't do it. So here Balaam seems to get God's permissive will, and God says, okay, seems like you're pretty determined to go and get your bag of gold and silver. All right, just say what I say. Nothing more, nothing less. Look what immediately happens in verse 19. Excuse me, in verse 22. Then the, God's anger was aroused because he went. Now you say, wait a second. Verse 21, he, in 20 and 21, he says, go, just say what I want you to say. And then in verse 22, it says, then the, God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now this is a bit confusing, right? Didn't he just say go? And now God's angry with him? What's up with this? Is God schizophrenic? Now, it tells us, and you don't get it until verse 32, so this is where the disconnect is, when the angel finally speaks to Balaam and says what the problem is. He says, I see that perversity is in your heart. Now, perversity, we, it, we've relegated that word usually only to a sexual connotation. To be perverted or perverse all through the Bible means to be bent or twisted. You can be bent and twisted towards greed which Balaam is. You can be bent and twisted in unforgiveness. You can be bent and twisted in anything. That's what perverted or perverse means. It means to be bent in the wrong direction. And the angel of the Lord is going to call him on the carpet, even though he's saying one thing with his mouth, I'll only say what you want me to say. And God said, you can't go unless you only say what I want you to say. But the Lord saw in his heart that he was trying to find the loophole to get what he wanted, and that was the bag of money, no matter what. Are you loophole finders? If you're breathing, you're a loophole finder, right? If you're breathing, you just, it's, a, it's a human thing. You just figure it out, how to find loopholes. And the Lord saw that. You know, it says in Psalm 139, verse 2, it says, the Lord understands our thoughts afar off. What does that mean? Before I even think it, God sees what's coming where I'm going with my thought life. That's kind of startling, isn't it? You remember Jesus is just having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, and he's sitting there, and they're reclined at the triclinium, which is a very low table with their feet away from the table and on his elbow, and, and this woman comes in, and she was an immoral woman, maybe a prostitute or whatever, and she had been washing Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping them off with her hair and anointing his feet, and Jesus is just eating dinner while this lady's like giving him a little foot massage down here at the end of the table like it's no big deal, and Simon looks at her, and he goes, In his mind, he just had this thought. He never said it. Wouldn't it be scary having dinner with Jesus? Like every thought that goes through your mind, just, just, and Jesus looks at you. Because that's what he said. Simon had this thought. He thought to himself, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is such in his feet right now. And so Jesus, knowing his thoughts, it says, knowing his thoughts. Do you know that the Lord sees your thoughts afar off? Five minutes from now, ten minutes from now, the thoughts that are coming to your mind, God understands them from far off. And God understands his thoughts afar off. 
that he had a plan, a nefarious plan, to get his greed satisfied, but somehow tiptoe the minefield of being disobedient so that he could get his way. That's what human nature does. Human nature is inclined to that. Just ask a 15-year-old, right? They'll let you know how that works as they navigate mom and dad's rules, technically. So it tells us in verse 22, then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now this is the last thing anybody needs, is the angel of the Lord standing on the road to be your adversary. Not only that, it says (laughs) he was as uh, Balaam is riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. So he's on this donkey, means of transportation. His two servants are along. Now the donkey, verse 23, saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn back onto the road. The angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that. And when the angel, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. This is when it gets rich. And she said to him, now, what does a donkey sound like? I can, now, she's a, we're going to find out she's a female donkey, so I imagine a female with a British accent right here. (laughs) What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? (laughs) Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. Now you have to just soak in that moment for a moment. He's so enraged. Talk about road rage or donkey rage or whatever you call this rage right here is. Right? First... The donkey is more spiritual and tuned in than Balaam. That's a real problem, right? If your dog's more spiritual than you, that's that's a problem. The donkey sees the angel and veers out in the field to save her master's life because he's got the sword. So the donkey's actually saving him, and he beats her, gets her back on the road. Now the angel moves further. There's a narrow place, and she has to get around the angel of the Lord just out of the swath of his sword, and she smashes his foot against a rock wall. Now he's angry and he hits her again. And then the angel gets into a place and there's nowhere to go. So the donkey just lays down and Balaam starts beating her and now she starts talking. And his two servants are watching this whole thing. Can you imagine? Now this is one of those things where people that have skepticism about the Bible roll their eyes and go, wow, what a fairy tale. That's such a Sunday school lesson. I mean, that sounds something like off Shrek. (laughs) And Eddie Murphy's playing the donkey. (laughs) He's talking to Shrek. But you have to understand this, you guys. The Bible, from beginning to end, is a supernatural book communicated and preserved in a supernatural way with supernatural stories that break all of the laws and the rules of things. 
A miracle is something that breaks a natural law. When Jesus walks on water, that's a miracle because the natural law of gravity should have prevailed, right? And he should have sunk. So when Jesus walks on the water, and Jesus was not the only one to walk on water, Peter walked on water for a ways until he saw the wind and the waves and he got freaked out and began to sink and Jesus gave him the one-arm curl, put him in the boat, right? So it's a supernatural book. When Jonah gets off course in rebellion against God and the sailors throw him out into the ocean, God takes care of it by sending a big sea creature, we believe a whale, swallows him up. He has a three-day, no-air-conditioned ride in this sea creature. It says the seaweed was wrapped around his head. Can you imagine the, the acid of the, the great you know, sea creature, the, the whales? Di- most people think it just ate his hair off his head and his eyebrows. You ever seen somebody that has no eyebrows? That's a freaky-looking thing. And these are supernatural stories. And so you have to ask yourself, is the God of the Bible that created the heavens and the earth in six days able to make a donkey talk? It's not Hollywood. It's not Mr. Ed, for those who are older. You or younger have no, have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, the talking horse. But isn't it cool that God not only put an angel to the Lord and gave the donkey vision to see the angel of the Lord and tried to save Balaam's life, Till he could be rebuked by the angel of the Lord, but then gave the donkey the ability herself to rebuke Balaam. I would say that's a lot of love on God's behalf to try to minister to a guy that's supposed to be pretty spiritual. In this story, as it begins to unfold, <laughs> it continues on in verse 30. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. He never stops anywhere in this argument. He's so torqued off. And just says, hey, no, wait a second. I'm talking to a donkey? (laughs) Right? I'm freaking out. No, it just seems like he's just talking normal. And then in verse 31, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. God opened his eyes, he saw the angel of the Lord, he humbled himself and realized he was in real danger with the angel of the Lord's sword drawn. And the angel of the Lord said to him in verse 32, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Now he's getting rebuked for smacking his donkey three times from the angel of the Lord. Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way, notice this, your way is perverse before me. Your thought, your plan of your heart that you have not uttered a word of, but I can see your thoughts and I understand them from afar off. I see where you're going to go with this. And because of that, I withstood you to kill you. Verse 34, and Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. He knows his own heart. For I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now, this is an interesting tidbit that Bible teachers like to point out. It says here, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Every time in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is mentioned, it is thought to be a Christophany or a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you picture our Lord Jesus showing up in front of him with a sword to deal with his heart because of the perversion of his heart, 
it gives you a whole different perspective about who Jesus is. Amen? Because you see, the Lord says the same thing to the churches in the book of Revelation. One of the churches, he said, I will come and fight with you with the sword of my mouth, which means the word of God. He said, I will come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth, my word. And here, what is the angel of the Lord? What is Jesus doing? He is fighting Balaam's perversity of his heart with the sword of the words of his mouth to try to get his attention. The donkey tried to get his attention. Jesus is trying to get his attention in this Old Testament Christophany so that Balaam might have the opportunity. And what an incredible opportunity we see that Balaam had to come out of this as one of the real incredible heroes in the stories of faith in the Bible. But he does not come out that way. He comes out at the other end of the spectrum. Now, when he shows up in verse 36, now, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of the Arnon, the border of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come and uh, come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, look, I have come to you. Now have I any power at all to say anything the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Right now, he's wanting to mind his P's and his Q's. Now, I don't have time to do it, but he now is taken to four prominent mountaintops to see the children of Israel from north, south, east, west. So, and they offer sacrifices so that he can call on God and God can curse these people. And what happens is that God turns Balak's desire for a curse and do four of the most beautiful blessings on the nation of Israel recorded in Scripture. Unbelievable. Every one of them is of just an incredible blessing. And at the end of the third blessing, this is what Balak says. He's so torqued off. Now, if you're paying a guy and you've sent all of your hired guns to go get him, recruit him, bring him, pay him bags of silver and gold, and he comes and he blesses your enemy with four blessings... You're upset, and Balak is seriously upset, and this is what he says in chapter 24, verse 10 and 11. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times, and then he would bless them one more time. Now, therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact... The Lord has kept you back from honor. I believe that this is the dagger of the enemy that got into the heart of Balaam to take him where his own heart wanted to go anyway. He said, you know what? I wanted to bless you. But God has kept you back from the honor that I would give you. The kind of honor, the kind of wealth I was prepared to give you, I'm not going to give you now. And you know whose fault that is? It's God's. God kept you from it because he wouldn't let you curse my enemies. See, one of the things that happens in the child of God's life is you lay your life down in sacrificial service for the Lord. There are times the enemy will shoot his fiery darts into your heart and your mind. You'll see other people from your observation that they're more blessed than you are, and you're laying your life down to serve God. You ever felt that way? The psalmist in Psalm 73 felt that way. He said, when I looked at the prosperity of the wicked, I almost stumbled. I almost fell on my space and said, what's the use, God? Right? 
my brother, my cousin, my coworker, my neighbor, they're all more blessed than I am and I'm serving you. What's up with that? When you see the prosperity of the wicked and you feel like somehow me serving God is holding me back from the best this world has to offer. That's just not true. I promise you, being a long ways down the road in my love and service to God, that God will bless you in ways that people would give their right arm to be in your shoes. But it's not the short game, it's the long game. Now, lest you think that this guy's a crazy fictional character, right, in somebody's comic book, Balaam, and a talking donkey. Do you know that archaeologists have uncovered one of the most specific uh, revelations of this guy in antiquity? See, back in Tel Der Allah, Jordan, in 1967, the historical evidence was discovered of Balaam, son of Peor. It's on this, this first picture is the archaeological site that they dug. And then you see a, a model of what it looked like in the book of Balaam, the inscription at Deir Allah. And the plaster that was on the wall and this writing that is 50 lines. It's 119 pieces of broken plaster that these archaeologists have put back together after a devastating earthquake tore this building down. But they recreated it. And the last picture here is a picture of the actual writing that they can distinguish. And it says, the book of Balaam. And it says three times in the first four lines. There's 50 lines in this inscription. In the first four lines, Balaam, the son of Beor, a divine seer, is he is declared three times. This is an archaeological fact that this guy existed. This was discovered in, it's like 746 B.C., which you call it 800 B.C. to round it off. But his conversation, this is a writing that would be much later that they must have copied from writings on the wall because he was having the dialogue with Balak in 14 B.C., about 650 years before that. I love it that the skeptics of the Bible, every time they throw rocks at the Bible, the archaeologist goes and puts his shovel in the dirt and finds the proof exactly what the Bible declares. Isn't that awesome? I just say that because I want to encourage you that you're not believing a fairy tale, but a genuine, real-life, amazing story revealed to us from the inspiration of Scripture. Now, I just want to wrap up. And put in a little bow. I've told you the narrative that was the first part of this story. And that's him being recruited. And then he comes. And then there's four blessings. But I want to point out some things. Because we're going to see this guy becomes a bad apple. This guy becomes an icon of evil. With this trifecta of two other guys that we'll share with you in just a moment. In the New Testament. As an example of false teachers and false prophets. That teach people to do bad things in the name of God. But first, you have to understand his incredible opportunity and exposure. You can't hang out with God's people and be around God's people and not be touched with the incredible goodness of God. And this, these are the things that Balaam, he'll never have any excuse. Notice the opportunities of Balaam. In Numbers 23, 8, as he's, cur- as he's blessing instead of cursing, it says, How shall I curse him who God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced. Verse 21, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him. 
These truths that he's declaring here, he's saying this, these people of God, they have no condemnation in God. As a matter of fact, he says something that's startling to all of us that have been reading the book of Numbers up to this point. The children of Israel are doing nothing but getting taken to the woodshed and getting spankings by the Lord because they keep being rebellious. And he, yet, what does he say? He says that he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. I want you to know that the positional place of people by faith is a place of no condemnation because that's where faith brings you. When God looks at you guys here tonight, if you're in Jesus and the blood of Jesus has washed away your sins, how does God look at you? Does he look at you as a person that's been grumpy and irritated all week? Now, you might have been grumpy and irritated all week, but that's not how he looks at you. Are you a person that he, he's looking at you right now just rehearsing all the sin of your life for the last year? No. How's he looking at you? With absolutely no condemnation that you're justified. It's as if you've never sinned in your whole life as you sit before him under the blood of Jesus. Isn't that the amazing truth of the gospel? That's called the positional righteousness in Christ Jesus. I'm not a perfect man and you're not a perfect person either. But you know what? I stand before the Lord totally uncondemned. He's not pointing out my sin all my sin was nailed and condemned at the cross, and so was yours. That's why my heart can be free. That's why I enjoy the forgiveness of Jesus. That's why I enjoy being with the people of God. We are a forgiven people. It's amazing, the gift of forgiveness. It removes the guilt and the shame and the burden of a life of sin so that our heart is free and light. And this is what Balaam is observing about God and his relationship with his people. He's like, check this out. This holy, perfect God and these normal people down here, they've put their faith in God, and God is looking at them with no condemnation. And then he puts the icing on the cake at the end of verse 21 when he says, and the Lord God is with him. God's presence is with them. There's no condemnation for you, and God is with you. Man, doesn't your heart need to know that? Doesn't your heart need to know there's no condemnation for you and that Jesus is with you? He also shares in verse 23 of chapter 23, For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob of, uh, and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. He says, you know what? You can't curse God's people. Don't worry if people try to curse you, if people try to put some spell on you. Every now and then there will be some kind of weird Wiccan or witch or various person that will rise up through the years of my ministry and say, hey, we're pronouncing judgments on you and we're putting spells on you and we have dark magic and this and I'm like, whatever. Knock yourself out. <laughs> because there's no, what does it say? There's no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. You are totally protected in Jesus' name. Isn't that beautiful? I want to know that I'm just, I, I'm protected. God is with me. There's no condemnation for me. I'm protected. And it says at the end of verse 23, oh, what God has done. You can just, here, Balaam is in awe and wonder about God's relationship with his people. And then lastly, under this opportunity that he had to observe all this in verse 17 of chapter 24, he gives one of the most amazing prophecies of David, the coming king, and the son of David, Jesus our Savior. Check it out. From Balaam, a guy that's going to go off the rails later. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Commentators point to this, and they say he could see the scepter, which was 
David's kingdom was coming on the scene. And as David's going to come on the scene, it's a double fulfillment of prophecy. Bible teachers talk about dual fulfillment. First it's David, and then it's going to be the son of David. Because what does it say here? It says that a star shall come out of Jacob. There's a star. People that studied this passage of Scripture, years later, years later, about 1,400 years later, some guys that are astronomers are watching the stars and they see a whole new star show up on the scene. And they travel all the way there to find it. Where was that star over? The stable at Bethlehem. This star. Balaam prophesied about a star rising. And that these wise men from far away saw it, observed it, and they went all the way to Bethlehem. Dual fulfillment. King David rose as a king from where? The city of Bethlehem. David's from Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because he is the son of David, an ancestor of David. All of this awe-inspiring revelation and opportunity was given to a guy that's going to go off the rails. You see, I've discovered that sometimes people with great privilege and great opportunities, they're just overwhelmed by some weakness in their life that capitalizes all that. It it trumps all that, if you will. You see, because the legacy of Balaam becomes this. He's overwhelmed by his own greed. What does he want most of all? He wants the silver and he wants the gold. How do we know these things about him? Well, the New Testament tells us. Look at, we're going to see the heir of Balaam, the way of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, and the death of Balaam as we wrap it up. The heir of Balaam is his greed. In Jude 1.11, it says, woe to them. Now, this is the trifecta of evil in the New Testament that points to false teachers and false prophets. For they have gone in the way of Cain, who killed Abel. They have run greedily in the heir of Balaam for profit, as we're reading, and perished in the rebellion of Korah, who rebelled against Moses, and God did something unusual. He opened up the earth, swallowed up him, his family, and everybody else, and then closed it back up. No big deal, just an average day in the children of Israel's life, right? These three guys, they were exposed to the things of God. Cain made a sacrifice to God of the, earth, of the crops, and Abel made a sacrifice at the same time. Cain got mad because Abel's sacrifice was accepted. His wasn't. Cain was the first religious individual that did not want to walk with God, but he was religious, and he persecuted the true believer, and he killed Abel. The first time in the Scriptures. First, the first believer in all the Bible that was persecuted and killed was Abel for his genuine, sincere faith in God. And his brother, who was a religious idiot, killed him because he was jealous that his sacrifice was accepted and his was not. That's the heir of Balaam. An heir is a weakness in our hearts. Now, every one of us, it's not one size fits all. I don't care who you are, male, female, young, old, every single one of us have our own particular cup of tea for weakness. You want to know what mine is? I'm not going to tell you. All of us have our own weakness, right? We all have our own particular thing that beyond whatever, the years go by, the years go by, and this persistent thing rises and rises and rises and rises. And you have to put it to death, and you have to put it to death, and you have to put it to death, and you have to put it to death. The heir of Balaam is a greed that trumped his relationship to be obedient 
with God. It's the same thing that happened to Judas, right? Judas' greed, he was, he was keeping the money box, he was stealing out of the money box, and then he finally thought it was worth betraying the Savior of the world, the Son of God, for 30 pieces of silver. Now, how does greed get a hold of somebody and say, hey, 30 pieces of silver is worth eternity separated from God? How do you process that? Well, you see, if you're not a greedy person for money, that has no pull on you and you go, idiot. But that's not your weakness, is it? What if the devil came to you and he offered on a silver platter the three things that he offered to Jesus, which are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Those three things. In those three things, whether it's a combination of all three or one that is glaring, what if he came to you and said, whatever your darkest desire is, I will give to you if you will follow me. You see, fortunately for most of us, we don't deal directly with the devil with those kind of uh, stakes, (laughs) right? He's got some little peasant demon that's messing with me because he's not like God. He can't be everywhere present at once. But check this out. His heir is greed, but then it says the way of Balaam. Your heir finally becomes, once you give into it, you give into it, you give into it, it becomes your lifestyle, doesn't it? Like, it was a weakness, but now I do it all the time to where, okay, now it's just my lifestyle. So then it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So it now has become his lifestyle. His lifestyle, he's just a greedy guy. And he'll do whatever it takes. He wants the wages of unrighteousness. And then this is the, what blows people's minds, is that he now teaches. How could he eat his cake and have it too? How could he go and tell God, I'm only going to say what you told me to say, which he did when he blessed the children of Israel. But how did he get the reward of the bags of silver and gold and the honor that he wanted? You see, when he spoke publicly, he prophesied four great blessings. But afterwards, you know what he did? Because this is what happens in Numbers 25. He basically puts his arm around Balak, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of painting a picture of the scenario, how, how he pulled this off. He taught him how to defeat these people. You can't curse them because they're blessed. He basically said, you know, if you're trying to get somebody to curse, God's blessed these people, and there's no way you're going to get them cursed because God's big. He blessed them. He said, but I want you to know, I know the God that they serve, and he's holy, and I know people, they're given to sin, and what you do is you get them into sin, and if you can get them into sin, God will judge them. You won't have to. Nobody else will curse them. You just get them into sin. So what he does is he has them all invite their neighbors over, and they have these false gods, and says, hey, you know, you know worship with us, bow down to our gods, and then we're going to have a meal, and then the, the young Moabite women entice the young men to get them involved in sexual immorality. So they were getting involved in two things that really were devastating for them, and that is idolatry, which was forbidden in the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before him, and sexual immorality. And that one-two punch, when the plague was over and God judged them, 24,000 people died because of it. 24,000. Because of what Balaam taught Balak, how to sink the ship of God's people. You can't curse them. They're blessed. They're protected. You can't do a thing about it. But what you can do is you can tempt them into 
sin, and then God will judge them. You say, How's, how does all that work? Well, Jesus tells us this. This is what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. I have a few things against you, speaking to the church, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You see, it went from a greedy weakness to his greedy lifestyle to now his message of life was how to get people into sin. It says, the doctrine, the teaching of Balaam, who taught, and this is what Jesus reveals to us, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. That's how he sunk Israel's ship. And that false teachers that come along and only have a greed for money, but they tell you, hey, it doesn't matter what you do morally. You want to be in a lesbian lifestyle. You want to be in a homosexual lifestyle. You want to be transgender. You want to step out on your wife. You know, whatever feels good, do it. You know, God's a very progressive God, and he doesn't really care anything about your morality. He doesn't care about your sexuality. He most certainly does. But these false teachers come along. I don't know if those who are older remember the story of Jim Jones, the cult leader, that takes his people to Ghana, right? And they drink the Kool-Aid, and it becomes a thing. Yeah, they've drank the Kool-Aid, right? And if you have ever seen PBS's story on his documentary about the sexual perversity that went on among their group as this false teacher led these 800 people to a foreign land to drink Kool-Aid so they'd all have a suicide pact, how does a person get from that to that? How do they get from being a person that said, oh, I really want to help people, <laughs> and now I'm killing people with drinking Kool-Aid? How do you get there? Well, along through the process, there's an air that you have, some weakness. It becomes your lifestyle, and then you begin to teach your message to others, and that's what he does. One of the prophecies, now we see the death of Balaam, because the thing is, is that his death is amazing for this purpose. When he prophesied in his very first prophecy about them in verse 10, it says, let me die the death of the righteous, Numbers 23, 10. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. He saw these godly people. He saw their relationship with God. He saw God's presence and blessing and protection on their life. And he goes, I want to be like them. I want to be righteous like them. And when they die, I want to be, I want to die like them because a righteous person dies well. They know they're going to heaven. It tells us, as a matter of fact, in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And he said, I want to die like them. And how many ungodly people that don't want to live a God life. They want nothing to do with the Bible. They don't want nothing to do with Christians. They want nothing to do with church. They want, but they want to die a godly life, <laughs> right? They want to go to heaven when they die. They just don't want to live the life now. I want to die the death of the righteous. In order to die the death of the righteous, you got to live the life of the righteous. And this is what he wanted. But what does it tell us? The children of Israel in Joshua 13, 22. It says, The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer among those who were killed by them. Did he die the death of the righteous? No. God's people destroyed him, killed him with a sword. They wiped him out. Why? Because he brought great judgment on them by teaching them to bow to other gods and to get involved in sexual immorality. That was his message. And let me tell you, across America, in churches across America, people are teaching these same kind of things. Teaching these same kind of things. I had a secretary whose best friend was in another church in a, a neighboring community not far away. 
And this, this pastor was so liberal. Her best friend went to that church. So on Sunday afternoon or on Monday, when they would talk and they would call each other, and, well, how was church and what was the message like? And uh, her friend would every, Sunday, every Monday would say, oh, it was fascinating. Our, our, our pastor told us this Sunday that Paul the Apostle was a homosexual and Onesimus was his lover. And she just went through this whole thing, and that was the Sunday morning message. Now, you would never get that from reading the Bible. Ever. But you know, if you want to twist things, you can make the Bible say anything you want to. Right? Just cut and paste. However you want to do that. And false teachers are across the land. That's why if you don't know your own Bible, you are a sitting duck, a fat sheep getting ready to be sheared because you don't know the Word of God. So that's why it's so important for you to know the Scriptures. So that you're not duped by individuals. This Balaam blows my mind for this simple reason. He was a guy that had so much exposure to God. God talked to him. God took every opportunity to have the angel of the Lord talk to him, have his donkey talk to him, have the opportunity to do the right thing through all of it. But in the end, he chose his own sin, his own greediness, and it became his, it was not only... (laughs) His struggle, it became his lifestyle, and then it, then it became his message, and he began to deliver it. You know, there's an old adage that says this, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And that's what every single one of us in this room are doing day after day with our lives. We're sowing our thoughts, they're becoming actions, they're becoming habits, and those habits then begin to make and develop our character, And then our character, as it's forged, is now headed for a destiny of heaven or hell. In faith in Christ or rejecting Christ. Trusting God and his word or rejecting God and his word. Wanting to be obedient and deny ourselves from those things that are pulling on us. Because I promise you, you and I are all susceptible to the pull of temptation and sin in our life to get us off track. But God in his love and grace is constantly speaking to our hearts to bring us back into that place of alignment with him. And so that's what our heart's desire is. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that your spirit and your grace would do a work that only you can do, Lord. Do it genuinely, do it authentically, do it supernaturally to help each one of us. And Lord, we pray for your strength to live for you. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for those areas of compromise, that you would forgive us for those areas of, that we've been being drugged in the wrong direction, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen us, that we might stand in the truth of your word and by your spirit. Lord, rescue us from ourselves. Strengthen us in your grace and your spirit to love you and to serve you all the days of our life till we see you face to face, Lord. We ask it in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.